Hey, welcome back, friends. We have a long, juicy episode today, so I want to get right on into it. Isabel Foxen Duke is our guest today. She is a returning guest of this is episode number three with Isabel. She is the creator of Stop Fighting Food, a free video training program for women who want to stop feeling crazy around food. After years of trying to overcome emotional eating, binge eating, and chronic weight cycling through traditional and alternative approaches, Isabel discovers some radical new ways to get women over their food issues once and for all. Not just by shifting the mindsets of individuals, but by challenging the dominant diet culture as a whole. A fixture and thought leader in the greater body positive movement, Isabel has been featured in the Huffington Post, Elle Magazine, Exo Jane, and has been praised by Ricky Lake. Her writing and free guide, How to Not Eat Cake, can be found at isabelfoxandduke.com, and you can watch her free video training ser- series, at the link that I'm providing in the show notes for this episode. You will not want to miss it. Wait till the very end of this episode to learn more about Stop Fighting Food. It's free, you're gonna love it. All my clients watch these videos. So many people of my tribe have watched these videos. Like I said, Isabel's returning for the third time on this podcast, so trust me when I say she is someone you do not want to miss an episode with. Before we head on over, I wanna just have really quick announcements so we can jump right on into this. I currently have two spots open for coaching starting in September. So if you want to fill one of those spots, you can go to maddiemoon.com slash coaching, fill out the application, read the testimonials, and see what coaching with me is all about. I have just started a a sponsorship with Audible. So if you want to get a free audio book from Audible and a 30-day free trial, you can do that at audibletrial.com slash mindbodymusings. There's over 180,000 titles to choose from, from your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or even MP3 player. For now, I recommend you get The Untethered Soul, The Red Tent, or The Circle. So if you have not yet tried out Audible, you can do that for free by going to the link in the show notes for this. That'll take you directly to where you can get this free book. And remember, I have those recommendations, but you can choose any book you want that is available on Audible. Last but not least, I would love to share a warm shout out to my other show sponsor, which is Beauty Counter, the dream company of skincare and beauty that is aiming to make skincare safer for us. Safer so we don't have to worry about getting cancer or infertility from the things we're putting on our body. So if you want to check out Beauty Counter, I'll have a link to that, beautycounter.com slash Madeline Moon. You can also email me if you want to see what that would look like to join my team or if you just want to know more about Beauty Counter and the work that we're doing in the world. Now, without further ado, let's go head on over to this magical show with Isabel Fox and Duke. You are now entering the Mind Body Musings podcast. If you find yourself hungry for growth, eager for inspiration, and longing for self-improvement, welcome home. Hosted by motivational speaker and life coach, Maddie Moon, you can be certain you will learn how to change your life in magical ways in each and every episode. Are you ready to stop caring what other people think? Is it time you break limiting beliefs and empower your whole being? Do you know how to use the one life you've been given to the absolute fullest? Join Maddie Moon and her inspirational guests every Wednesday for the life-altering discussions on freedom, vulnerability, abundance, and so much more. For more insight, grab your free gift on MaddieMoon.com and uncover your own once-in-a-lifetime greatness within. If you have kind words to say, feel free to leave a review on the show in iTunes or send your favorite episode to a friend. 
We look forward to hearing your insights and growing together in unexpected ways. And now, without further ado, here's your host, Maddie Moon. Here we are back with another episode of the Mind Body Musings podcast. This is episode 167 with three-time returning guest, Isabel Fox and Duke, of course, if I'm going to have any guest on for a third time, maybe a fourth time, maybe a fifth time. It's going to be Isabel Fox and Duke because I freaking love (laughs) everything this woman does. Every interview is so juicy. So if you have not listened to the first two that I did with her, you must, must, must go to the show notes and click on those two different episodes. They're divine. They're beautiful. But this episode, we're going to get really deep into binge eating, emotional eating. We're going to revisit those topics, those tried and true subjects that was really the foundation of this show. Like even three and a half years ago, maybe four years ago when this was getting started, these were the topics that really inspired the entire basis for the show. And I'm pretty sure Isabel was like the second guest I had on the podcast. So it's really cool to like see it come full circle. Here we are older and wiser. Welcome to the show, Isabel. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Such a pleasure. I know we've known each other for a long time. I mean, I was, you know, just first running the circuit when I met you, I feel like. Um, but yeah, I'm so excited to be here and honored to be a third guest. And uh, yeah, let's, let's, Let's see where we're at this, you know, this many years later. I find this so fun. I'm just like, I remember like just, just moving to Colorado, not having any friends being like, I don't know how I feel about fitness anymore. What is intuitive eating? And like Googling intuitive eating or something like that. And then your name popped up and I was like, who is this girl? I want to meet her. And then emailed you and then like the rest is history. And here we are. Oh my. Oh my, I know the rest is history. <laughs> what a cute love story we have. Yeah, we do. We do. We do. Well, so cool. Well, so I'm excited. So, um, yeah, gosh, long, long time coming. There's lots to discuss. So let's, let's, well, let's dive in. Let's dive in with your background and your story. How did you get to where you are in this beautiful place today? Cool. Okay. And I know that I've talked about my story a little bit differently. I mean, I talk about my story on pretty much every podcast interview that I get on. Like, I feel like that's how, and that's how I prefer to open myself up to people, right? So people kind of like know where I'm coming from. Um, but every time I do it, I do it a little differently. So, you know, we're going to hear a few different themes that are coming up in this version of the story relative to maybe the other times that I've been on the show or was on the show a few years ago. So, um, so for those of you who are like completely new to my work, which, which may be, you know, quite a bit of you at this point, cause I, cause you know, like you said, you're, you're, it's been a while since you've really, we've talked about food on the show. Um, I, Um, uh, I was a, I have like a long, long, long history of just like completely sort of quote unquote dysfunctional eating, if you will. Right. I mean, I think that every woman kind of has their story with body image or the way that's impacted their relationship with food or, you know, whatever the case may be. I had a dramatic, very dramatic eating disordered story, um, in my, in my own head. That's how I look back on it. But I think it was a, it was a dramatic version of something that people relate to a lot or that's happening for lots of people on, in sort of different degrees. Um, I was put on my first diet when I was about three years old. I almost always start my stories by, by sharing that piece of information. Put on my first diet when I was three years old. So I was very, very young. I was like pre-conscious memory when my food was first restricted. And um, as a result, right, I kind of grew up, I, I 
grew up always dieting, always dieting, always dieting, always rethinking there was something wrong with my body, right? Like I grew up from a very, very young age, always thinking I'm a little bit too big, right? Like I'm just bigger. I'm a little bit too big. I was constantly, I remember being in like ballet class as a little girl, like comparing the circumference of my thighs to the little girl next to me. Again, very, very, very young age, being very conscious of the fact that there was something wrong with my body. It was a little, too, it was quote unquote, a little too big. And it was just like, you know, the, the ultimate goal in life seemed to be to make it smaller. And if I could just make my body smaller, kind of everything would be okay. I, I remember feeling that from as young as I can remember. And so, of course, as a result of this, you know, I was always kind of trying to control my food, right? Always restricting my food and or my food was being restricted for me, depending on my age, right? Sometimes my, you know, my parents slash doctor obviously were trying to control and restrict my food. Um, but also I was very much, I, I didn't, at the time I wasn't resentful of that. I was like, oh my gosh, I really do need to control my food. My, my, my body isn't okay. Ugh. And I really tried to, you know, do everything in my power to try to restrict myself as well. Um, so it wasn't something that was just happening to me. I was definitely very compliant and complicit and actively trying to control my size all the time. So dieting my whole life, as a result, right, I was also what most dieters end up doing eventually, which is I binge ate a lot, right? Like as a result of feeling restricted around food, as a result of feeling like, oh my gosh, I shouldn't eat this, I shouldn't eat that, I kind of always looked at food like it's the temptation, temptation, this thing that I want, but I shouldn't have. And, you know, I just kind of felt like my appetite was enormous. It was bigger than life. Like it could never be stopped. It was insatiable, right? I always felt like, oh my gosh, I really, really want that brownie, but I shouldn't have it. Like there was no brownie I didn't want ever. I just always felt like, I have to sit on my hands and try not to eat that. Like, dear God, help me not eat the brownie. Um, it was this constant sort of restraint that I felt around food all the time, this constant kind of self-restraint, don't eat it, 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 right? I was constantly trying to control myself. But, and I really felt like, you know, if I, um, I didn't recognize that that restraint actually was kind of creating a situation in which all I wanted was brownies, Right. But sometimes, of course, I would crack. Right. Like I think about dieting or restriction sometimes as being similar to like you're hanging off the side of the cliff, trying not to fall. You're like, don't fall, don't fall, don't fall. And binge eating is like you just crack and you fall. Um, and and depending on how tightly you've hold on, depending on how high up there you are on the mountain, right, the farther there is to fall. Um, and so that was sort of my experience of food for most of my life was just this oscillating between desperately trying to control, desperately trying to restrain myself, desperately trying to, you know, make my food right, make my body right, make it go my way, right? That was one side of the pendulum. And the other side of the pendulum was like just, just complete loss of control, right? Like just complete falling wildly, flailing about. I, I, th I literally think of the image of someone falling off of a cliff and they're, you know, flailing their arms about, screaming, ah, ah, right? Like falling, just falling, 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 falling. That's sort of like how binge eating felt to me. It was just, again, this constant, I feel like when I was diet it was just this constant pendulum swing between desperately trying to control, desperately trying to grip, make it go my way. And the truth of the matter is, is when I was 
you know, restraining and restricting when I felt like I had it under control. I felt powerful. Like I was like, oh, I'm going to do it. I'm going to get my life under control. I'm going to, you know, make everyone, everyone's going to want to date me. Everyone's going to want to love me because I'm going to be so thin. I'm going to have a perfect body and I'm going to be like the best. Right. And it felt like I was like kind of addicted to that feeling of trying to control, you know, my size and my food. And then again, but of course it would eventually become too much. I couldn't hang on tight anymore. And I would have these sort of dramatic binge eating episodes where I would just be like falling and I would just be terrified and I would just feel like such a failure. So ashamed. I'd just be like, Oh, Oh, what have I done? You know? And the only thing when I was in the cycle, of course, the only thing that would make me feel better would be like trying to control again. Okay. Like, okay, tomorrow I'm going to get back on the horse. Right. And so this was just my life back and forth and back and forth and back and forth and back and forth for, I mean, years until I was in my early twenties, really. Um, and so, yeah, basically two decades of just doing this with food all day and that being sort of like a primary driver of my life and also a primary way that I managed my feelings in the sense that, you know, any time I was feeling upset about anything or, oh, my gosh, you know, so-and-so boy is rejecting me or so-and-so, you know, situation, so-and-so person doesn't like me or, you know, whatever situation it was, the answer was always, okay, I got to get thin. And so that sort of was like, okay, I got to buckle down, do the thing, restrain, control. I'm going to make this situation go my way, right? And then, again, massive loss of control is almost inevitable. It was inevitable. It was inevitable, massive loss of control. Um, So, yeah. And so I think, you know, it's interesting because, you know, I've sort of talked about this, this pendulum swing quite a bit in my work for anyone who's listening who knows my work. And sort of it's a, you know, major thing to understand in my work with food, right? It's like the more you're trying to control, the more out of control you're going to feel at some point, right? Like this is a pendulum swing that is happening, that is constantly happening with people around food all the time. That is basically the driver of diet binge cycling. And quite frankly, it doesn't necessarily have to be physical restraint through um, um, uh, through dieting as, as, you know, kind of quote unquote spiritual people always talk about restraint and trying to control is an emotional state as well. Right. So there can be like a, an emotional desire to just, <sighs> I just want to do the right thing with food. And I just want to make sure my don't lose control of my body. And I just want to make sure my body's okay. Right. That can also lead to these dramatic swings of loss of control, these sort of inevitable loss, uh, swings of out of control, which I call, I would call that emotional restriction, which I know we're going to talk about on this episode at some point. And also I think further, not to, I know I've been chatting my little mouth off, but we do this in all sorts of areas in our life outside of food as well. Right. So this has sort of been like a major realization for me, um, in the past few years, probably since we last spoke was that this, this theme, right. Of desperately trying to control and then losing control and then desperately trying to control and then losing control, um, is sort of a pattern that I think many of us see all throughout our lives in so many different areas, dating, money, career, right? I mean, this is very much sort of like the human compulsion, in my opinion, is the compulsion to control and the desire to want things to go our way. And it is that very specific sort of human lizard brain instinct that also gets us into a lot of trouble spiritually and leads to sort of our greatest frustrations in life and our greatest feelings of failure and our greatest feelings of shame and our greatest feelings of dissatisfaction. So I'm really excited to, to chat with you more about that on this call. And, and that's sort of a, an introduction to 
to the world of Isabel Fox and Duke. You're such a dynamic speaker, though. I love it. I'm so engaged. I'm just like, yeah, and what then? And I've heard this story yeah. so many times, and I'm still so interested. But oh, good. Yeah, so the, talking about this control thingy-majig, which is just totally ruling so many people's lives, when I'm hearing your story about the three-year-old diet, first off, um, I do have a question about that. What? Why? Like, three years old, why? And also your root of control. I think so many people have different sources in a way of, of need, why we need control, like the root, the wound. We need control because of this thing that happened with our parents when we were a kid, because we were fosters, because we were abused. Like we're fighting for control for various reasons because of various roots and wounds. When mm-hmm. I'm hearing your story, do you think your root of control was that you had to have control when you were like three years old and there's probably more to it. But do you think that was like the first, the first moment in your life where you're like, Oh, I, I need to do this. I need to control this thing right now as a baby in diapers. Well, so it's relevant and important to know as a side note to the control conversation or any kind of like spiritual conversation that I was put on a diet by my pediatrician because I was like high on the baby VMI scale, which is sort of like a whole other issue can of worms, right? The fact that, that babies are being put on diets because they're too high on the BMI scale, because, you know, I, I guess I was like in, I was like in the 95th percentile or the 96th percentile or something in weight. And therefore my pediatrician was like, went up to my parents. and was like, Oh, you don't, you gotta be careful about her weight. Like you don't want to like fat baby. I mean, that was like effectively the message that my parents got from my doctor. And of course my doc, my parents being sort of dutiful parents wanting to do the right thing. I mean, I think parenting is so hard. It's like, you're constantly worrying about doing the right thing. And you're, this doctor says, Oh gosh, you know, your baby's too fat. Effectively, you got to put her on a diet. And they were like, you know, Oh my gosh, Mm -hmm. you know? So, so there is a social component to it, right? There's a social cultural component to it that stems from, you know, just growing up in, in a fat phobic society in which our medical system is highly fat phobic and all of these things, which is sort of, you know, another aspect of my work that I talk about all the time. But, you know, the social is heavily interacts with obviously our psychology, right? And um, this, so while I was, you know, put on a diet by my parents. Again, I make this very relevant point, which is like, it wasn't just that I, it wasn't like, oh, this is so annoying. I have to eat my broccoli. You know, my stupid parents are putting me or making me do this. I was complicit. Like I was, I very much got the message that my body wasn't okay. And that I, and I knew, I will say, I knew at the age of three that thinness and lovability were connected. I knew that, right? And so if that is a very young age, uh, but I think that there is, there's a ton of research to suggest that kids do know that thinness and lovability are connected by the age of three, which is crazy. I mean, they know, right? We, it is incredible how as uh, pretty much as soon as there is language, very quickly after there is language, there is understanding of bias comes pretty fast. Um, and weight bias was a form of bias that impacted my life really early on and also heavily impacted my family. Like fat phobia was something that was just heavily happening in my household. My, my mother was a dieter. My father was a dieter. Um, and so, yeah, I would say it was, it sounds dramatic 
to be like three years old and be like, oh my gosh, my body's not okay. I need to go on a diet. But it was like sort of the combination between a, my pediatrician actively putting me on a diet. I don't think I would have, I don't think I would have had conscious thought to try and diet or control my food at the age of three, obviously had my, had my parents not done that for me. Like, I think that that's too young of an age. I mean, I wasn't controlling my food at the age of three, right? Like I was just eating what my parents gave me at the age of three, but I was old enough at the age of three to know that the reasons they were doing it is because they were concerned um, to some extent about my lovability. Mm -hmm. and that my lovability was connected to my size. That I understood at the age of three. And there's a ton of research to suggest that like young girls at the age of three get that. So obviously you are supported in your pursuit for losing weight and creating this ideal body as you get older and you strive and strive and strive to create this. The people around you that are raising you are doing the same thing. As an adult... I know you know this, of course, but you probably hear lots of stories of, I'm so mad at my mother still because she's the one that encouraged me to be on the special K diet when I was 15 years old. I'm mad at my father because the only time I got to spend time with him was when we were having dinner. I'm mad at my Mm -hmm. mother for this. How did you, if you even struggled with this, I'm kind of making an assumption. So first, did you struggle Mm -hmm. with blame on your family? Like if only my family didn't raise me in this kind of way, I would never have this problem. Did you have a period of time like that? And if so, how did you learn that they were doing the best they could with what they had and it wasn't like they had ill will and it's not necessarily their responsibility moving forward and let that go. You know, it's interesting because it was like, I loved to blame my parents. Like it was like almost like by blaming my parents, I got a false sense of control. I was like, Oh, I know why this is happening. I know why I feel crazy around food. I know why I ended up in eating disorder treatment. I know why I, you know, I'm so quote unquote screwed up around food, right? Oh, it's because of you, mom, you did this to me, right? And it was, I think that there was a part of me deep down that knew it wasn't just her. Like it was the whole world. It wasn't just her. It was never just her. She is just part of the whole world that we exist. She's just a victim of the whole world that we exist in, right? I think that like, I feel like if I'm really, really being honest, looking back, I feel like there was a part of me that knew it wasn't just her fault, but I loved to blame her. I loved to blame her. It made me feel, to, to stay in line with the theme of this conversation, made me feel in control to blame her, like in some way. And it also, I think that I worked out a lot of other completely non-weight and food related issues with my mother through blaming her. Um, you know, like it was almost like a thing that I could blame on her, if that makes sense. And so, yeah, I definitely went through a period of my life, especially when I was like in and out of treatment and I was fighting with my mother a lot. We were having issues in our relationship that had nothing to do with size. Um, I pulled that out as like a thing that I was resentful around and, you know, kind of like, this is your fault. You did this to me. And I kind of held on to that. And I think that some, if I'm really being honest, I think some of the reasons I held on to that had nothing to do with food and weight. Some of that was just, again, a, a way to work out my relationship with my mother, but also it, just speaking with, about weight and food specifically, right. It kind of made me feel like, Oh, I know why I have this problem. It's because of my screwed up parents, which made me again, false sense of control. I think that there's a lot of ways in which this shows up for people is people really like to explain away fatness of any kind. People really like to explain away, um, you know, oh, I eat because of X, Y, Z, right? 
people really, really like to come up with, you know, specific reasons why their food and their body is the way it is, if they, especially if they, you know, particularly if they're unhappy about it or like dealing with stigma around it. Um, and I think that it's sort of like the reality of the situation is like, it's far more complicated than that. Like, like we live in such a deeply fat phobic world. Bodies and biology are deeply complicated when it comes to weight. But we all, like, we just want, and I think this is relevant for the whole self-help world, it seems like we all just want somebody to tell us, like, the thing that is the problem so that we can, in our heads, be like, oh, I can, like, fix this thing or this is the thing and that's why. Like, I feel like blame is a way that we grasp for control in a lot of ways. It's like, if I can understand it, then I feel more in control of it. It's the same reason people weigh themselves even when they're not dieting, right? Like, people, like, give up dieting, but they'll have a, you know, some of my clients depending right on their on their particular compulsions of choice and behaviors of choice will have a really really hard time letting go of the scale even if they're quote unquote not dieting and quote not restricting because they just want to know right it's like i just want to know i just want to understand i just want to right and it's that false sense of control even if you're not actively theoretically quote doing something to make it different or make it go away i just feel like that desire to to understand is such a human compulsion um, uh, because it makes us feel safe to under be like, I understand why this is happening. It's much more scary to be like, yeah, I'm struggling with food. And like, there's like a billion reasons that I'm struggling with food and I, and I don't really know why. And I don't actually really know how to fix it necessarily. Right. Like that's a much scarier place to be. Um, so yeah. So I think that, that I definitely, I definitely went through, Various periods of my life where I was blaming my mother, and um, I think that a lot of the reasons, I think the reasons I was blaming her were complex, and I now definitely, especially with the socio-cultural education I have, recognize that not only was my mother just trying to do the best that she could in raising me, but she herself was a victim. I mean, she herself was dieting. She herself was a person who felt pressure on her to be thin and felt pressure on her. I mean, it's a horrible way to live, right? Fat phobia is... A horrible way to live, like kind of irrespective of size, irrespective of where you're at. Like if you're a person who just is like running around feeling like my worth depends on my body size, which I think, you know, certainly my mother and I think, again, my mother's not unique. Most women struggle with to some extent, right, is a painful place to be. And so I, it's, it's, I recognize, I definitely am very compassionate with my mother today. I sort of recognize her as, as a victim. That being said, I will say like, you know, there are um, there were lots of fights, right? There were lots of fights with my mom on this topic, um, and you know you can be a victim, and like it can be real. Sometimes it's really hard to feel sorry, right, and to feel compassion for victims in these situations because you know they you feel like they're spouting something that could be really harmful, and it, it makes you feel like they're the enemy when in reality they're just like you know. A person who was brainwashed like all of us right they're people and i think like growing up there's so many different ways that we are trained to believe that our parents are the end-all be-all basically like they're gods in our life like we're just in love with them we want to please them we want to do right by them we listen to their every word we often have to listen to their every word unless we're punished like we want to please our parents in so many different ways and i think that as we get older it might be an important stage to say, hey, I have a problem. Here's the root. Obviously, I think it's wonderful to have this root. And if it includes some blame, maybe there's a t time period where that will be served. But 
I think the extent to which you can truly be free is very dependent on the extent to how much you're still blaming someone. Like if you're absolutely blaming and saying it's all your fault, you're still giving away your power to take back mm. your life. Mark Manson in The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck talks about how you, you, can totally, you can totally say that you're not at fault for something. You can say this other person is at fault at something and it's not your fault. But that doesn't mean that you don't need to take responsibility. So you can take responsibility without being the one that is technically blamed. Not to say that anyone else should be blamed, but of course, there are certain circumstances where they're rooted in other people. Like I have had a lot of perfectionism things come up through the family I was raised in as loving and just kind hearted as they are. That's just life. Like even being, being alive. I read this in Sarah Ovid Stover book, being alive is a traumatic experience, which I started laughing so hard when I read that line. Cause it was just so blunt. Like the beginning of a chapter being alive is a traumatic experience. Yeah. I, was like, I was like, it's so true. Like every day, so true. every day is trauma and every yeah. day, like it's not just, this one instance that something like extremely, extremely traumatic happens that's known as a society to be something that's traumatic every day is a traumatic experience. And yeah, you know, like if you're going to sit around your entire adult life and point the blame at someone else and also refuse responsibility for moving forward, you will constantly be victimized. And this beautiful idea of recovery and freedom and body love or just body acceptance will not be achieved because you're sitting there playing the victim forever when you have the choice now to move forward and say, hey, let me humanize my parents. They're human. My mom was a victim too. Like, not right. my mom wasn't, but for someone whose mom was, you say that my right. mom is a victim too. Like this happened right. for her. She was doing the best she could because that's what she knew. And, right. and, and realized that we are fortunate to be a culture that has access to podcasts and books and videos and people speaking out because our parents didn't have that. Yeah. I also think that there's a huge difference both psychologically and just as far as just like real like reality social impact is concerned between blaming one individual and blaming sort of a systemic problem right so like i'm like i'm not mad at my mother i am mad at fat phobia right like i'm mad at this like really screwed up cultural situation that we're in and like i, I you know I, I think that this is incredibly problematic and i've you know kind of like no problem quote blaming fat phobia as an as an idea as ambiguous and nebulous as that is um, I'm like, oh, fat phobia is the problem. My mother just got sort of swept it up in it, as most people. My doctor, obviously, was incredibly swept up in it. Um, all of these things, right? So that also, I think, is a, is a massive transition. Like, there's, and, and because, and it's also really helpful. I think so many people blame themselves. I mean, a big part of dealing with food and weight related issues, like, what is wrong with me? I failed. I'm a failure. I mean, that is sort of the mantra of anyone who's diet and cycling or struggling with food is I'm a failure. I suck. I'm a failure. I suck. I can't do this. What's wrong with me? What's wrong with me? What's wrong with me? Why can't I get this under control? Why can't I make this just go right? Why can't I just get my body right? Right. There's so much self blame, so much self blame that happens. And I feel like, you know, the answer is not necessarily, you know, blame your mom, but I think that there is something. And you mentioned this earlier, like when does it serve you? When does blame serve you? I think there is a time and a place when, sort of blaming the social situation, right? The sort of the, 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 uh, the oppressive culture that we're dealing with under sort of the reign of fat phobia, if you will, um, that is, can be really, really healing and sort of recognizing like, oh, this isn't my fault. Like, it's not my fault that I, 
um, quote unquote, feel crazy around food, as I like to say, right? It is actually, I'm actually also a victim of this like horribly oppressive system, um, institutionally fat phobic, institutionally weight biased system. Um, and that, and I feel like that's, there is, there is a moment in time where it's okay to be angry about that. I think it's okay to be angry about that as long as you want to be angry about it. Um, assuming you also have space in your life to kind of, uh, move on and enjoy as much as you have available, right? There's so much pain in this world. Um, you know, obviously we need to kind of, like you said, life is traumatic. We need to just with that situation. Um, but yeah, so I would say I would, that would be like my only other when it comes to blame is there's also like a, a, you know, blaming your parents is such a narrow view. It's such a, it's such a misunderstanding of what actually is the problem when it comes to food and weight. What's actually the problem when it comes to food is weight is the fact that like we live in a culture where it's where it is wasn't even questioned that you would try and control a three year old's food. Okay. Um, so speaking of fat phobia, I have a question that popped in my mind. This is kind of something I've always wondered, but I've never really known how to phrase it. So I'm just gonna say exactly what I'm thinking. Can you not have fat phobia? Can you work on your fat phobia, accept accept fat and not be afraid of it and also not want to be fat or do those two not ever go together i think fat phobia by definition is well it's it's not wanting to be fat or judging people on the basis of size including yourself right let's say fat phobia is like you know assumptions and judgments of people on the basis of size including yourself um, fat phobia, like most other isms, right? Like let's just take sexism as an example. Don't go away entirely. They get worked on, mm-hmm. right? So it's an understanding, right? I think like to do body image work is to understand that I have been brainwashed, right? And to actually work with that information, um, rather than this idea of like, oh, I don't want to lose weight anymore. I don't, you know, I don't have any body image issues anymore. Now I'm body positive. Like that is a highly unrealistic idea of like the series of events that actually goes down when it comes to doing body image work. I think body image work starts with, wow, I have a lot of body shame and wow, I have a lot of fear of weight gain. I have a lot of internalized and externalized fat phobia. I judge myself on the basis of size. I judge other people on the basis of size. I'm terrified of gaining weight. I'm terrified of the judgment that I would incur socially if I gained weight. You know, it's sort of like, it's much more about um, kind of looking into the reality of what's going on and working with that information. Not like, oh, I don't want to lose weight anymore. And so therefore I'm going to go join the body positive people. No, Body positivity, right, is about, it's just a political understanding, right? It's a political understanding of like, oh, wow, I recognize that I am brainwashed. I recognize that I am deep in this thing called body hatred, right? That I'm deep in this thing called body shame. I am deep in this thing called fear of weight gain. I'm deep in this thing called I want to be thin. I recognize that I'm deep in it, and I recognize it as, as a cultural attitude that I have been brainwashed by. It has nothing to do with your wants and not, and, and not wants, 
right? Like as a person who struggles with fat phobia, yeah, you're going to probably want to be thinner or you're going to be afraid of gaining weight or whatever. That's what fat phobia is. And making the decision that you're going to work towards it is just basically making the decision that, okay, I think like transitioning to body positivity is basically like making the decision that instead of trying to deal with my fear of weight gain and deal with my body shame and deal with all of the issues that I have with food by trying to starve myself, trying to make it go away, trying to, you know, basically pander to like fat phobia, cultural, like what fat phobia tells me to do. Instead of that, I'm going to actually start challenging it. I'm going to start working with it. I'm going to start really looking into it. I'm going to start being like, why do I feel this way? Why do I think this way? You know, can I recognize the sort of social and cultural influences that are brainwashing me around this all the time? And again, it doesn't ever, there's no day when you just recover from fat phobia. Fat phobia is something that people work on for their entire lives, just like sexism is something that people that work on, or racism is something that people work on for their entire lives. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think that that's, it's sort of this misnomer. Like people always get, it's funny because people, I get this email, these questions when people are signing up for my programs and they're like, Hey, like, I just wanted to make sure this program is right for me. Like I still want to lose weight. Is it okay that I'm joining the program or is that, can this program help me if I still want to lose weight? And I was like, well, guess what, girl, if you didn't want to lose weight, you wouldn't be here. Um, you know, like <laughs> you wouldn't have a problem with food. We wouldn't be having this conversation, you know? Um, and so, you know, it's sort of this misunderstanding that, like, liking your body is a choice, like, or that, like, dealing with body shame is a choice, right? Like, no, body shame isn't a choice. Body shame is like, a, is, like, a thing that's happened to you and that is continuously happening to you, right? You are being body shamed all the time. You are being made afraid of fat by a stigmatizing society all the time. The question is, like, how are you going to deal with that? Are you going to be like, okay, I better go diet. No other choices here. Or are you going to try to, you know, actively look into it and sort of resist on a political level the way that I would resist sexism? So I'm going to use sexism as an example just so that people can understand what I'm saying because I think that people have an easier time with sexism. Like, to understand this concept, I think the parallel of sexism will be helpful. But it's sort of like sexism just exists, right? Like, it's just out there. It's just like in the world. It's sort of the dominant paradigm. It just exists, right? It's just happening all the time. We are all experiencing sexist thoughts every day, all day long, right? Like, just like, they're, it's just happening, right? We have two options when sexism occurs. It's like, I can be like, oh, well, sexism occurs, so I guess I better wear my, like, you know, I guess I better, you know, keep my mouth shut at the party because no one likes when, you know, girls speak loudly at parties, or, you know, or like, whatever the thing is, right? We could p pander to the sexism. We can do the thing that sexism tells us to do and be like, I guess I have to be married and have kids, even though I'd really rather go travel the world and be like a childless single person. You know, like, we could, we could do the thing where we just do what sexism tells us to do, right, because we feel that pressure, or we could be like, mm, actually, no, I'm going to deal with this fear of being judged, I'm going to deal with these complicated feelings of not conforming to my gender in some other way, right, like, maybe I'm childless and single, and I feel, um, really badly about that in many ways because of, again, my brainwashing, even though there's a part of me that like doesn't really want to be like in, you know, committed monogamous relationship or whatever the case may be, right? Like it's just about, it's not the absence of negative feelings. The negative feelings are going to happen. The question is like, how are we dealing with those negative feelings? Like, how are we responding? Are we responding by just completely being oblivious and just pandering to and just being like, yep, yeah, I'm just going to let this thing called sexism run my life. 
or, and probably not even notice that it's there. I mean, that's the irony, right? It was sexism and fat phobias. Like until people learn these, this language, they don't even realize that it's there uh, for the most part. And so it's like, okay, am I just going to let this run by life? Or am I going to be like, wow, now I have this information. I recognize that sexism is actually impacting how I interact with romantic partners. I recognize that sexism does, you know, influence how I behave when I'm in a group of people. I recognize that sexism does affect, you know, how I feel. Do I feel like a failure if, you know, depending on my relationship status? Like, do you know what I mean? Like, sexism affects so many different parts of our lives all day, every day, all day long that most of us don't even think about it because it's just like the air that we breathe, right? We're not even conscious. It's just like, we just think it's normal. We don't even notice it, right? And so I think that like, you know, working on like gender politics, for instance, is about like, it's not about the absence of, oh, I'm not going to feel bad. You know, I'm going to have no feelings about the fact that I'm the only single person at this wedding. It's I'm going to actually start to think, recognize that part of the reason that I have negative feelings about a single per- being a single person at this wedding is because I've been told my entire life since I was a little tiny girl that having a male, having a male monogamous partner will make me happy and is the path to success. So does that make sense? Yeah. I love these parallels and it's just like, I'm, well, as you're talking, I'm thinking about my own personal life and how many times this comes up. And like, I remember like everyone else listening to this podcast, whenever I was younger, th- that was exactly the case. It was just like my dream for you girls. This is like one of my parents talking. My dream for you girls is that one day, like, I mean, when you go to college, you're going to find someone, you're going to fall in love. Um, they're going to have a really successful job. My dad used to always say, it's just as easy to marry uh, rich as it is to marry poor. So very rich and like, you know, be a stay at home mom, like have your kids and be a stay at home mom. And like, once they realize, I will say, I will give them some credit here. I mean, once they realize that they're now, they have adapted so much because honestly, I feel like my parents have learned from me and my sister a lot. Like they didn't know. And I think that us growing up and explaining our dating stories and explaining what we want and explaining like our dreams and money, financial goals that we have, they've been like, wow, look at you girls. Like, this is amazing. Like, and they've been so supportive since. And it's been so refreshing because they have decided to be adaptable and I'm not waiting for them to tell me I'm enough. They love, like I'm enough in, in a sense of like what I'm doing with my life. I, I decided first, like I want to do this and then they will say, how'd you do it? That's amazing that like they can do what they do, but I will, I will notice and I will take you know, control in a healthy sense of the life that I want and hopefully they will see it and they will agree. And that's exactly what happened. But if I had continued to wait or to do what they told me to do, that's not how it would have gone. And I wouldn't probably be nearly as happy as I am now working on my own business and yes, being single. So right. it's, it's like, it's so important to listen to these messages and stories just the other day, like this relates to what we're talking about in certain ways, but I I received an email from someone that was saying like, they had mentioned in there that they want to be independent. They want to travel. They love doing these things, but there's an ex in their life and it's confusing things up and she doesn't know what to do. And like at one point she wrote in there, like, I'm just being a crazy emotional girl. Right. You know, like at that point, like the first thing I wanted to write this email is like, you are not crazy for having emotions 
Right. You're, you're a woman with emotions. That's how it's right. supposed to be. That's beautiful. Take a hold of that. It's like the minute, like, oh no, like I have this dream, but there's a, there's this like love and romance that's like also in my life. Oh my God, I don't know what to do. So I must be crazy. Right. And it's right, like, right, right. no, it's so normal. Right. It's so normal. And it's like, right. we right. are supposed to feel these ways and, and lean into it. And the more we judge it and shame it, the more insecure we get, the more we fall into these sexism patterns. And also the more we grasp right. for control and then get eating disorder issues from it. Right. Exactly. Fat phobia and, and sexism intersect, right? Like they are connected to each other insofar as part of what it is to be a woman, part of what gender performance is for women in our culture is to be thin. Um, and so, yeah, it's amazing. But yeah, I mean, so like these things, they're, they're inextricably linked, but they can also be kind of looked at as two sort of separate um, kind of s- s- cylinders, if you will, or silos, if you will. Um, that actually have a lot of parallels, right? We don't even necessarily see and recognize most of the time how we are impacted by fat phobia, how we are impacted by sexism. I'm still unpacking this. I continue to unpack this every day. Right now, I'm working out a lot of my internalized sexism in the world of dating, right? And I'm really starting to see, whoa, like my, I'm 31 years old, right? So I'm like kind of at that like weird age where it's like, okay, wait, like, how important is this for me to like have babies and have children? And like, I always kind of thought that I would just have babies and have children. And I always just thought that I would just be married and like in just this like heteronormative relationship, you know, I just always have these assumptions of what my life should and would look like because of all the brainwashing that I received as I was, you know, my whole life from everyone, not just my parents, the whole, every romantic comedy I ever saw, you know, painted success for women as like, And then they got married and have babies, right? (laughs) Um, And so, you know, it's hard. Now I'm sort of at this age where I'm like, whoa, like, like, what's going on here? Like, what do I really want? I'm being confronted with all of this. Like, what do I really want? But it's it's very, very hard to also extricate myself. Like, what's brainwashing? What's an actual legitimate desire, right? Like, it's really hard to know. And it's really hard to parcel out. And it takes a lot of... um, it takes a lot of like serious soul searching to be able to decipher what is actual legitimate desire of mine and what is my brainwashing and like my feeling of like pressure that I feel to be in a relationship um, or to have a certain type of relationship or to be in a relationship with a certain type of guy or a guy at all or have kids or, or whatever the situation might be, right? Um, and so, yeah, and this is, you know, this is a direct parallel to, I feel like, I feel like what women deal with with food, particularly when they're transitioning to intuitive eating. And I know we've talked about this before, and I wonder if you'll, if you'll have comments about this, but it's like, you know, when people are transitioning to intuitive eating, I feel like one of the hardest things is like, what are my legitimate desires around food outside of diet mentality, right? Like outside of all of the brainwashing, outside of all of the fat phobia, like what do I even want to eat, right? The truth of the matter is people don't typically just want to eat only fruits and vegetables or only chocolate and brownies. Most people want to have like a diverse range of things that like make them feel good, make their body feel good. And, but also is pleasurable and tasty and, you know, gives them emotional pleasure and all these things, right? Like we want this, but I think in the context of diet land, right? When we're, when we're feel, when we're brainwashed with fat phobia and diet mentality, all we see is what am I allowed to have? What am I not allowed to have? Right. What do I wish I could have? And what are the things that I think I should have? 
right? And this brainwashing really clouds our ability to make decisions about what we want around food so much to the extent that like, we don't even know what we want. Like, I don't even know what I want. All I know, all I think I want is brownies because all I'm allowed to eat is broccoli, right? And so it's like this whole thing where this, this, it gets really, really confusing navigating what's coming from diet mentality and stigma, you know, and where, and like, what is actually, what would be my legitimate human desire if that phobia didn't exist or if diet mentality didn't exist. And that is, I mean, I feel like this is the same thing with dating, right? It's like, again, it's the same, these cultural expectations, and this is where it starts to get psychological, these cultural expectations, they start to screw with your head, right? And, and, And it takes so much kind of soul seeking, right? And it takes so much sort of psychological and spiritual work to kind of figure out like, what are my true desires in the land of relationship, for instance, or in the land of food, which, you know, I would say is sort of like a practice step for dealing with the same question in all sorts of other areas, like career, relationship, etc. Yeah, these topics, they bring up so much for me personally. I know they probably do for everyone. But when I just think about, like, the moment when I realized that I didn't have to, like, date this particular kind of person, like, I had been told (laughs) my entire life, like, since I was 10, like, write a list of the qualities you want in a partner and, like, memorize that list and have it with you always. And my list was always what my parents' list was. It was, uh-huh. like, number one, Christian. Number two, parents are still together. Number three. Well, whoa. Yeah, 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 exactly. And, like, number three, like, I don't know, wait, waiting till marriage. Number four, like, all Money. these different things. Money. Like, really good, good, great, solid job. Like, the passion behind the work? Nah. You know, right, like, right. like it, everything else didn't really matter. Like who the parents were that were married, meh. You right, know, right. what, like what his Christianity looked like, meh. Like as long as it right, was right. those things, it didn't matter. Like as long as I stuck with those. And I remember just like, it was such a tormenting struggle since I was young to look at people that I was interested in and, and basically get punished for it. Like there, like even when I got my first kiss, I was punished for it. I was screamed at. My mom was so angry at me. And I don't think I've ever shared this on the podcast, but like she was just so mad, like so angry because I had kissed and it was like a bad thing. God like didn't honor that. She told me. And like, then she handed me like five books to read about like Christian, Christian and dating, like all these different things when I was 13 years old. And to this day, it's not so much anymore, but a lot of times the emotions will come up whenever, anytime I have a first kiss with someone, cause I feel, I would feel guilty and I would feel Aww. like, yeah, I would feel like I needed to be like in trouble or I just had like these awful feelings, like I'm bad. And then if someone tried to kiss me on a first date, I would automatically not like them because they are not a good, good person or whatever. Like this stupid list followed me for so long until I finally realized like, huh, I don't know if I want a Christian. Huh? Right, right. I don't give two craps if they even are talking to their family. Like, right, right. it's important to me that a person wants a family because I do. But where they came from wasn't their choice. So right. maybe that doesn't relate anymore. Like, you know, right. and just the freedom, the fear. So many things come up with that when you're finally like, hey. I can challenge these things that I once thought were law. They don't have to be law. I can actually break away and figure out, not even like decide right now what I want, but just figure it out, feel it out, lean into it, but allow myself to totally rip up these mental lists that I've been following my entire life. Like thinking that a first kiss is bad, thinking that sex out of marriage is terrible. I'm going to hell for it. Like stripping all of that away and just asking myself like, 
what is what what sounds good to me in this stage of my life and and that's a forever that's a forever question really like you said you're 31 you're still asking these things and looking at them and i think that's a process that so many of us are going through on such a regular basis whether it is relationships or it is food or it is our career it's bouncing from one thing to the other and that's what life is mhm yeah totally 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 so yeah it is it is kind of interesting to sort of look i didn't even think that we were going to end up talking about the social cultural aspects of this conversation in this show but it's like so relevant it's like you just can't not go there at some point um but yeah so i mean i i it's it's highly influential and i, I feel like we don't realize how much i feel like one of the reasons i talk about social like so sort of sociology sociology and culture so much as my coaching is i feel like so many people we just don't even necessarily recognize how impactful our culture and our sociology is in developing our own internal psyches and it's like critical 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 that we sort of look into that and challenge that so so to answer your original question which is you know can i basically be body positive and still want to lose weight or effectively just struggle with body shame right i mean like that's the whole thing um or still you know be afraid of gaining weight or afraid of fatness or not want to be fat or whatever the case may be right and and i think also it's relevant another thing we could talk about is fatness isn't typically a choice for people but we, uh, that's a whole other mm-hmm. conversation that we'll get into rel- related to control um but these these questions right this internal fat phobia that i think we're all dealing with all the time is um is the it's not like oh that must go away and then i can go hang out with the body positive people or and then i'll stop dieting right like it's usually like that is a th- like sexism that's just part of the air that we breathe it's part of the air that you're breathing and the question is like what are you going to do with it like how are you it's changing your relationship to fat phobia itself right so it's like the conversations that you're having that you're having with yourself about wait so why do i have this feeling like i need to lose 10 pounds or no one will love me why do i have this feeling of like oh my god i want i would you know i i'm terrified of being the biggest person in the room or whatever the, like what is that about right and sort of really sort of looking into that similarly the way you might look into why do i have all of these like negative feelings when i'm the only single person at the wedding or or whatever the case may be right and just sort of understanding that your emotions are not happening in a vacuum right like your emotions are not just random your emotions are heavily influenced by the culture around you oh my gosh yes this is precisely exactly why these roots so we didn't really get to talk to emotional restriction binge eating emotional eating. But fortunately, we have two other podcasts that dived really deep into those topics. So I will have the links of to those on the show notes for this. I want to talk about, before we go to the quick fire round, which we have to do, I want to talk about your signature program, Stop Fighting Food. I have sent so many of my tribe members, my own clients to this program for anyone that's trying to understand these roots more the binge eating the emotional eating the restriction the dieting the childhood stuff like being able to go through a course and essentially have your hand held and ask questions and receive support and have a community around this ever-present topic because it is everywhere we have been victims to this as a whole in the world in the media and society and it's not going anywhere anytime soon so for anyone that is interested in learning how to move past this, get tools, recover, learn more, just have more freedom in their life from these 
crucial issues that are controlling so many things, what can they do? So, well, so the, the Stop Fighting Food, the video training series, which I think you've, you've definitely seen before, is definitely the place to start. I think there's going to be a link to the, the video training yes. series in the show notes. Um, but so this is just sort of like an introduction to some super, super core core concepts that I teach around recovery that often don't get taught in like clinical therapy sessions, for instance. Um, we're talking a lot about sort of the intersection between psychology, even spirituality, and and sociology and culture and like how the way that we have been brought up, the way that we've been raised influences the way we think about food in ways that sort of set us up for all of these kind of behaviors, including binge eating, including increased emotional eating, including just compulsive desire to restrict and diet and body shame and all of these things. It's all sort of like, you know, I feel like binge eating, emotional eating, dieting, restriction, body shame are all just sort of different sides of one coin, if you will, right? They all kind of go together for most people. And this whole big pie called that I usually call feeling crazy around food or feeling crazy around weight, right? Um, actually does have, you know, there are some very specific things that we can do to heal these issues. Um, but it does take, you know, sort of a combination of factors. It, it takes really, really looking at the cultural influences that are that are affecting the way we think. It really takes looking at and challenging like, oh, like, why do, you know, why when I, uh, you know, see a picture of myself where I look bigger than my friends, I like have a meltdown, right? It, it takes also, I think, from the food perspective and looking at food, like, why do I look at food as, you know, either this thing that I'm supposed to have or this thing that I'm not supposed to have, right? And like sort of really kind of getting into the roots of the thought processes that are driving this whole problem. Um, and so, you know, if any of you are interested in that, I would definitely, definitely, definitely uh, listen to the previous two episodes that I did with you, Maddie, because those are obviously, we went to a lot more detail on food specifically, binge eating, emotional eating, et cetera. But also the video training series, Stop Eating Food, is like a really, really good entree to what I would consider to be like, okay, you know, really where you need to start as far as, you know, kind of healing these issues and understanding my perspective on these issues. Yeah. And this, so like we talked about earlier, I don't spend too much time talking about even though I do food and body image coaching still, and that's why people come to work with me one-on-one, I don't spend that much time talking about it in the show. I don't have courses on this necessarily besides my scripture food healing one. This is the, this is like the, the whole video series is the one that I point people to first and foremost who are interested in learning more about the work that you're doing because it co- covers so many different realms and sides and spectrums. And if anyone li- who listened to this episode knows that you're such a dynamic speaker and you're very engaging. So for anyone who's interested in, and taking the next step and diving deeper into learning how to recover from these things and stop fighting food, I will have the link to the free videos on the show notes for this episode 167, as well as, like I said, the previous two episodes that I have done with Isabel. Is there anything they need to know about the videos? Are they up always or is it? They are up time? always. Okay. Oh no, the video series are always up you can sign up for the video series at any time. I will be offering a um, like a group coaching program, a masterclass um, in early September. So um, if you're interested in that, that would be a time sensitive thing. But the video series is completely free and open to the public at any time. So I would you know get into that whenever you want ASAP when you listen to this, so you don't forget it. <laughs> yeah, totally. That's exactly. I, I love these videos. Everyone that I work with loves them. So sign up for that on episode 167. And now, time for the quick fire round. Are you ready? 
Yes, let's do it. Okay. I wonder if these are the same questions maybe I asked you last time. I don't think so. I update them, so we'll see. What, okay. for right now at least, what are three words that describe you? Ooh. Um, uh, whoa. <laughs> um, that is a tough one. Really pulling out the big guns. I would say I am, um, uh, I analyze stuff all the time. I'm analytical. Yeah. Analytical, like slash, like critical thinkery. Definitely. That's one that comes to mind. Um, another one that comes to mind is, uh, I don't know, some version of like bold, passionate, like loud. I'm just a big personality. If you haven't gotten that already from the podcast, you should see me in my personal life. Um, I always feel like my personality is like is like bigger than life. Right. Um, and so some version of that kind of aesthetic comes to mind, like bold, big, like, um, something like along those lines. Um, and then third as a description of me would be hmm, analytical, passionate, bold, loud. Um, I don't know. I guess the third would be (sighs) introspective. Hmm. That's good. Today. There's, a, there's a like there's a mixture there between like feminine masculine. It's like the analytical, but then there's like introspective. So I like right. that. Okay. Yeah. What edge are you on in life right now? What's the edge that you're you're breaking through in some area of your life? Um I mean, probably what I've already talked about on this episode, which is like, I've been doing an enormous, so I'd feel like I was doing work around food for years and years and years and years. And now I teach that and like, you know, kind of got that down for the most part (laughs) Um, with, you know, obviously always fat phobia is an ongoing challenge to manage, but I feel like I have like a really great, like, I feel like a, you know, as you, I I think relate to kind of have like a good grasp on that in my personal life. It's not something that sort of like I deal with regularly outside of work really at this point in my life. Um, that being said, or certainly not the way it used to be, that being said, where I'm learning all of my lessons right now is definitely in the context of relationship. Um, and I think where I'm sort of at the edge is sort of, I feel like I'm on the edge of like really just dealing exactly with what we were talking about with this podcast is sort of like, unearthing like what do I really want in relationship what am I comfortable with and also like a lot of letting go in relationship like if I'm on like kind of getting comfortable with the concept of like if I'm meant to have kids I'll have kids if I'm meant to be married I'll be married right and like really being open to like and if those things don't happen that's okay too right like if that's just not where my life takes me that's okay too like I just like really kind of like edging into trusting that like wherever my life takes me in the realm of relationship or or family building is what is kind of meant to be right. And, and is going, I'm going to have an amazing, beautiful life irrespective of, I don't know if meant to be is a, a word is a term that make works for people or not, but is I'm going to have an amazing life no matter what the hell happens with my family and relationship situation. Mm-hmm. And it makes a lot of sense given the social such circumstances that I'm in, that I'm feeling a lot of pressure as a woman, you know, straight cis woman at the age of 31 to have these thoughts. And also like my freedom is going to come from, like, like leaning into uncertainty around it and really embracing uncertainty and embracing life unfolding the way it is. And so, you know, these are themes that have come up in all sorts of areas of my life. I've, I've gone through this in my work life. I've gone through this in so many different areas of my life, certainly with food, but it's really like unearthing. I feel like it's like another layer of surrender that I'm unpeeling. 
it's happening in for me in the, in the realm of relationship. And that mm-hmm. is, um, that's sort of where that's definitely what comes to mind when you say like, what are you on the edge of? Mm, beautiful. I love it. What did you eat for breakfast? Oh my gosh. I haven't eaten yet. I'm on the West coast and like, I literally rolled out of bed and got on Skype. So I'm going to eat like some sort of muffiny thing when we get off the phone. Mm, a muffiny thing. It's my favorite thing. <laughs> a muffiny thing. Yeah. <laughs> yes. What is your biggest quality turn on in any kind of partner? Like, what does attract you quality wise? Um, humor, definitely. Especially like sort of that like cutting edge, like sort of sarcastic New York City humor. I'm from New York. And so like I appreciate like a, a new a good good old fashioned New York sense of humor. Mm-hmm. Um and I would say yeah, I'm, I'm not sure. It's so weird. I like, I've been thinking, I've been thinking about this question a lot too. I feel like if there's like a je ne sais quoi, like I'm not exact. it's like, I recognize what I'm attracted to, what I'm just like instinctively just like, just immediately attracted to. I recognize it the second that I see it, but it's kind of hard to describe. It's like an energy. Yeah, I know that because like people will talk, tell me that they have a type or do you have a type? And I'm like, I don't have a type. Every single person I've ever really been into they're nothing alike, but it's this like hidden magical energy between us. I don't know. Pheromones. Right. I don't know. Something is really like, I love it. Um, right. who are three people you'd invite to the perfect dinner party? Ooh. Um, Alan de Baton, who is this like fabulous, like British, uh, he runs the school of life. If you're familiar with the school of life and I just love him. I just think that he's just like articulate and smart and fun and like self-helpy, but not too self-helpy as a perspective perspective on the world. But he's also just like an academic who's just like making fun things to listen to. I think he'd be like the ideal dinner party guest, the Alan de Baton. And then, um, other dinner party guests that I would have would be dead or alive. Yeah. Okay. I would say dinner party. Oh, Lena Dunham Mm -hmm. is like somebody that I often will reference as a part of person that I would have at the dinner party. Um, because I just love her. I mean, like, I know she's like a controversial figure and it's like, you kind of like love her or hate her, but I'm again, she grew up like 10 blocks away from me. I guess she's hardcore New Yorker. Like I just like fully relate to her and I, and I really respect what she did for television and what she's mm-hmm. doing for for women for the most part as in, you know as imperfect as she is i think that she is just like an incredibly net positive force in the world especially for women um and a third would be a third would have to be oh Pema Chodron hands down Pema Chodron Pema Chodron, it would be really interesting to, so Pema Chodron is a Tibetan Buddhist nun Ooh. who is, she's like my primary spiritual teacher. Like she's arguably, in, as far as human beings are concerned, she's arguably influenced me spiritually more than any other humans on the planet. Like many people have, in, have influenced my spiritual life. I've been influenced by like so many different, like, you know, spiritual disciplines and practices and people and like perspectives and schools of thought. Um, but I would say like, if I had to say to date, if there was one human who influenced you the most, it would probably be Pema Chodron. Um, and yeah, she's just like really an incredible human being. And she's also been very, very influential to me in the past, I would say two to three years specifically. So she's like kind of top of mind. She's sort of like my, um, 
if there was sort of like a spiritual celebrity that that I am kind of most attached to, it would be her. Where should um, people start to like read more about her or understand her? Like, is there a book or an audio tape or something like that that you recommend? Yeah. So my favorite of her books is um, When Things Fall Apart. Mm-hmm. So all of her books are great. But When Things Fall Apart is the book that I read. I was going through a really, really hard time when I first picked up this book. And um, like it just completely like radically shifted my whole life. I feel like reading that book, like I, it was like, it was like something happened and I just was, it was like, I felt like, Oh my God, this is it like, I, my whole body just like relaxed this, like while I was reading her oh, work. I love that um, feeling. Yeah. Like I was like, oh. um, and so, yeah. And so now, I mean, now she's, she's prolific. I mean, she's written probably 10 to 20 books she does like, you know, just recordings of her speaking engagements all over the place. Um, but I would say when things fall apart is that was the first book that I read. And it's to this day, my favorite of her books. Um, I will just say just as a prerequisite out there, she is not like spirituality light. Like she's spirituality, like kind of heavy. When I first, I was introduced to her years before I picked up When Things Fall Apart. A friend of mine told me to read another book of hers called The Wisdom of No Escape. Um, and it didn't resonate with me at all. I like couldn't understand it. It was too esoteric. I was like, I, it was like all the words were going over my head. I just didn't get it. Like it was just like it went in one ear, went out the other. And I just didn't, I just didn't get it. It was like, I couldn't connect it and understand what she was saying. And then like three years later, I picked up this other book of hers. that's you know, very similar. Um, and it was like mind altering, life changing. So I feel like it's definitely, her work is definitely the type of work where, you know, like I always say this to like spirituality beginners. Um, it's not necessarily work that will just like immediately resonate with somebody who doesn't have some sort of foundation of something. Um, but if you are a person who has like a, you know, a deep spiritual practice of some kind, or just it's familiar, like, like familiar with like basic spiritual practices, whether it be, um, you know, whatever that looks like, whatever discipline that looks like, um, you know, this is a book that is incredibly, incredibly powerful. Awesome. Um, when you're ready for it. I'll yeah. have that. I'll have that book then on the show notes for this as the must read book of the episode. And right. the last question, if you had a talk show, what would you name it? Oh, wow. Um, what would I name it? I would name it, um, <laughs> Uh, God, I don't know. Maybe like something IFD, something. I'm like trying to think of like what I was like. Actually, the first word that comes to mind is musings, but that's your word. You can um, have it. No worries. No. <laughs> I'm like, but I'm like, but like that's sort of what it is. I mean, I love that word because it's sort of like. It's just sort of like, you know, it's like the sort of the, the random pensive thoughts of Isabel Fox and Duke. Um, I like it too. It's kind um, of like a playful word for thinking about things. It's like you're musing about it. It's not like you're studying it. You're intense about it. You're musing. So I Right. It's like word. musings, musings, like musings, if you will. Um, there's an episode of Friends where Rachel Green describes herself as like having musings about the possibility of maybe, you know, hooking up with Joey. Um, <laughs> musings. Um, 
so yeah, so I do like that. I do like that playfulness. It's so funny because I immediately am thinking also like if I had a talk show, like would I have guests? Would I do interviews? Like what would I do? It's interesting because I don't, I mean, you know this about me. I'm pretty much always a guest. I never interview people. It's incredibly rare that I interview people. I think I've interviewed like two people in my entire career for my blog. I pretty much never do interviews. And so like I never host interviews. I'm always the guest on interviews. And, um, it's funny because like immediately when I'm like, well, a talk show, I'm like, what kind of talk show would I have? But yeah, no, I guess it would be something like, it would be something like that. It would be something like, um, and if I was going to have a talk show, I would just like be like, I would be like, Isabel Fox and Duke talks to cool peeps. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. There's, um, have you like, uh, what's her name? Uh, Kristen Wiig has mm-hmm. a, did you ever watch the movie she did? It's like an independent film when she wins her own talk show. Or she doesn't win it. She like wins money maybe or the lottery. And she's no. Like this, oh, it's such a good movie. She's like this quirky, really weird, lonely woman. And she, I think she wins a lottery or something. And she decides what she wants to do is have her own talk show. And it's called like The Me Show. Or Welcome to Me. That's what it's called. Whoa! Welcome to me. It's, it's so funny. I love everything she does, and so I had to watch it. But I was just like, I love this. Welcome to me. It's like the greatest. I love it. Oh my gosh! Yeah, no, I I I love Kristen Wiig, so I'll have to check that out. Yeah, check it out. It might be on Netflix, but you could find it pretty much anywhere. I'm sure online. All right, all right, all right. Wonderful. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Isabel. I love. I just love everything that I love. Everything we talk about. We have really good like interviewing chemistry. So I'm always excited to chat with you and like see where you're up, where you're showing up in life and all the little pieces of knowledge and wisdom. And I know that there's going to be like so many more episodes in the future with you still. Yay. Me too. I'm super, super excited. Thank you so much for having me as always. And, um, yeah, I hope that, uh, got some, we definitely went in a different direction with than the other podcasts that we've been today. So I'm glad that that, uh, gave some people a little something new to chew on. A little something new, new. okay great wonderful everyone if you want to check out the free video series i will have a very clear link to that on the show notes for this for episode 167 while you're there if you have not yet downloaded the free gift from me for pillars of femininity for perfectionists you can get that while it's hot it's still up there let me know what you think about it and i hope you'll have a wonderful rest of your week and i'll catch you next time